Good morning, church. As you may know, this summer we have been journeying through the book of Acts in a worship series that we have called On the Road with the Holy Spirit. As you can see, I am on the road this week too, attending Georgia Pastor School at Epworth by the Sea in St. Simons Island. It's been a lovely week full of learning and beach time and catching up on my reading. You see, I made kind of a goal for this year. I'm going to read 52 books, one a week. It's actually going pretty well so far. I'm on track to finish, but I don't always feel confident about my book selection. I kind of struggle to find titles that interest me, and most of the time I'm not even really sure where to begin or where to look. In the past, I've taken recommendations from friends or NPR's book concierge. Yes, such a thing exists. But more often than not, I just go browsing through the catalog of books that I can get for free with my Amazon Prime subscription. It's actually really cool that I can access all of these titles. They've got classic novels and drama, like the books that you had to read in high school literature classes. There are essay collections and memoirs, true crime, history, you name it. But in my experience coming through the prime reading smorgasbord, I can tell you that there are a couple of genres that are disproportionately represented. The first would be weirdly niche romance novels. And the second, well, I think the best way to describe this genre is plucky young woman does brave things during World War II. I have to admit that over the past year, I have read more than my fair share of these historical novels. And after a while, they all kind of start to run together. They tend to kind of follow a formula. The protagonist is usually in her early 20s. She's bright, competent, beautiful, but not too beautiful. And through some combination of events, she finds herself in a Western European capital city. It's usually London or Paris where her charm and unique skills and sheer moxie put her in just the right place to oppose Hitler through espionage. Yeah, every story is a little bit different, but most include some kind of standard love interest, a few close calls with Axis powers, and eventually, of course, a happy ending. You can count on it. It's like clockwork. And here's the thing. I don't even particularly like these books but Amazon keeps offering them to me and I keep reading them. And at this point, their formulaic nature doesn't even really bother me all that much because I know what I'm getting. And I find that consistency kind of reassuring actually. Maybe you can relate. After all, there's a reason why soap operas are still on the air and why Law & Order had such a long run. Why the Marvel Cinematic Universe just keeps expanding with more and more blockbuster movies. The formulas behind these stories, they might be predictable, but they're also reliable. They might even be comforting. There are heroes to root for, conflicts to draw us in, and everything works out in the end. We can count on it. And as we've been reading through the book of Acts, we have heard stories of miracles and conversions and even martyrdoms, but it occurs to me that in each of their stories, there's a little bit of a formula at play as well. 
In fact, if you were to open up your Bible to Acts and just start reading through, you notice that even though the individual narratives feature different characters in different locations and sometimes different action, they share common themes and common story beats. You'll even hear repeated phrases from chapter to chapter. Now, I have to admit that as I prepared this sermon this week, I struggled a little bit because each time I thought I had something worthwhile to say to you, I realized that Kathy just preached on it last week, or Garrett said something to that effect a couple weeks ago, or ugh, Phil just used that sermon illustration. See, I couldn't come up with anything new to say, and I realized eventually it was because the stories weren't really saying anything new either. So hear me out here. Let's use the example of this week's text. This week's story comes from Acts 13, and it begins as many of the Acts stories do, with the nudging of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Acts 13, we read that the Holy Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch as its members were fasting and praying. So verse two says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Spirit sends forth these two disciples to share the gospel. There's nothing particularly new here. Then, as Paul and Silas begin their mission, they sail to the island of Cyprus. They travel through towns like Seleucia, Salamis, and across the island all the way to the west to Paphos. And as they travel, they stop at local synagogues to proclaim the word of God. Now, again, we're in familiar territory here. Paul and Barnabas even run into another magician in Paphos, which calls back to the story of Simon Magus that Garrett shared with us a couple of weeks ago. These are familiar story beats. And finally, the two apostles arrive in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than the Antioch from which they were sent, by the way, just to keep it clear. There, in Antioch of Pisidia, they follow the formula. They visit a synagogue where they are invited to preach. And here, Paul preaches up a storm by telling a familiar story. So with the Jews who are gathered in the synagogue, Paul remembers how God delivered Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, how Israel flourished under King Saul and David, how God promised to bring a Messiah to save God's people. Then Paul tells the gathered crowd about Jesus how Jesus taught in Jerusalem but was rejected and ultimately killed, how he rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples, how Jesus brought healing and salvation and fulfillment of God's promise. And according to the narrative that we get in Acts, Paul's preaching makes a difference. And this is where we pick up with today's scripture. So let's hear what happens in Acts 13 verses 42 through 49. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people urged them to speak about these things again the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But 
When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and blaspheming. They contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. We are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. And as many as had been destined for eternal life became believers. Thus, the word of the Lord spread throughout the region. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here we all, here we are. Paul and Barnabas seem to be chugging along, sharing the gospel, and they have a measure of success. But then they fall flat on their faces. They're rejected by the very people that they came to convert. It must have been a devastating blow to their confidence. But our scripture lesson doesn't even really dwell on such matters. Instead, it shifts immediately to the win that they experience. Paul and Barnabas, they turn their attention to a new group, the non-Jewish population of Antioch of Pisidia, the Gentiles, which we are told heard and were glad of the message that the apostles had to bring. And when their first plan fails, Paul and Barnabas didn't give up, right? Their journey wasn't over. God continued to make a path for them. It just, it was a different path than they had prepared for. This redemption of failure, this second chance narrative, this tenacity in the faithful, this here is the element of today's story that is probably the most familiar to us. See, there are scores of these narratives and acts and indeed throughout the Bible. We've heard them in the past weeks. You've heard about the conversion of Saul. You've heard about Peter's escape from prison. There's John and Peter testifying before the council of Sadducees and being released at the end. Each of these are stories where the protagonists face extreme trials only to be led by the Holy Spirit into a new and better reality. You see, at their core, these are stories about the power of resurrection. But why are there so many of them? What's with this formula anyway? Why does the Bible in general and the book of Acts in particular present so many versions of the same narrative? See friends, this is the question that I have been chewing on this week. Why so many? And I think the answer is that there are so many of them because we need them. You see, I think the concept of resurrection is hard to grasp. The idea of someone dying yet coming back to life in a new way seems magical and hard to pin down. It's illogical. We know this story of Jesus suffering death and resurrection, but our rational minds grapple with the mechanics of how that could really happen. Did Jesus really come back to life after three days? How did that look? How could he appear to his disciples in the room where they were gathered on the road to Emmaus in the breaking of the bread? These things defy explanation. And even if we abstract the concept of resurrection, it's still kind of hard to believe. 
because we can talk about new life in the shape of recovery from disease or freedom from addiction or new relationships. But the truth is that when we are in our darkest places, when we're experiencing death, it's difficult to believe that we will ever see the light again. So we need to hear these stories. We need to be reminded over and over that God is faithful and that our failures and our fallings are not the end. We need to hear it with different characters, in different locations, under slightly different circumstances. We need to have it written upon our very hearts. On an individual level, I know that stories like the ones that we hear today can bring us a lot of hope. It's a powerful thing to know that our failures may be discouraging and even painful, but that the bad thing, even the worst thing, is never the last thing. God's promise of new opportunities in the face of failure has been an important promise for me this year. Many of you may know that my marriage of nine years came to an end in October of last year. It was not what I had planned. It was not what I wanted. It was gut-wrenching and world-upending. And while I have been very lucky and privileged to be surrounded by love and support from friends and family and this church community, I would be lying if I said that this breakdown, this failure, didn't leave me wounded. But even in the lowest moments, I've been reminded of Paul and Barnabas in all of these stories when God's Spirit carries people through moments of grief and vulnerability and instead makes a new way. Chances are very good, I think, that you all have stories of your own, right? You've had your seasons of difficulty when you've been faced with a job loss or a scary diagnosis, the disintegration of a relationship, the death of a dear loved one, See, our experiences are not the same, but all of us know in our hearts and in our bodies what it feels like to fail or to be rejected, to come to the end of a road. We know that feeling of desperation and grief. We know the fear that comes. And more to the point, we know how incredibly hard it can be to believe that things can be different, that we can start over, that God will make a future that is beautiful and joyful and maybe even better than what we were aiming for in the first place. We need the stories to remind us. And I think this goes even beyond our individual experiences, right? It's also important to consider what this story might be telling us as a church, because this promise of God, this promise of new life and new beginnings, isn't just for us to experience as individuals. God's offer of second chances, God's promise of resurrection is after all the very foundation of our existence as a church. Spending time at Epworth this week, I'm reminded that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, is actually kind of a perfect example of this. You see, John Wesley was born a preacher's kid in Epworth, England in 1703. He studied at Oxford in the 1720s, and he was ordained in the Church of England. He became a missionary for a society called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. And as a consequence of this, he sailed here 
to Georgia in 1735 with his brother Charles. Here he served as the rector of Christ Church in Savannah. Maybe you've been there. But his dream was to bring Christianity here to America and particularly to the Cherokee and Cree people. Those efforts were, um, shall we say, unsuccessful. And John eventually even had to leave Savannah under a cloud of suspicion after a failed love affair and an actual legal accusation of defamation. John left the colony of Georgia altogether in 1737. And he said in his journal, about eight o'clock, the tide then serving, I shook off the dust of my feet and left Georgia after having preached the gospel there, not as I ought, but as I was able. You can kind of tell in these words that this epic failure, failure was full of hurt and disappointment for him. But Wesley knew our stories. He knew about figures like Paul and Barnabas, and he didn't give up. Just a matter of months later, he experienced a conversion at the church on Aldersgate Road, where he felt his heart strangely warmed. He experienced a new call and a new fervor. He began preaching in fields like I'm doing right now, forming bands and class meetings and laying the foundations for what we know as Methodism today. And by the time of his death in 1791, Methodism had grown to 294 preachers, over 71,000 members in Great Britain, 19 missionaries, and over 5,000 members on mission sta stations. And here in America, almost 200 preachers and over 43,000 members. John Wesley knew the stories. So he knew that failure and defeat would not be the end of his journey. And his faith in the power of resurrection and this power of second chances and the power of the Holy Spirit led him into a new reality, a bigger and better reality than he could have imagined on his own. And friends, I think that this is what today's passage is all about. It's a story of faithfulness. It's a story of perseverance. But most of all, it's a story of new life. The new life that comes when we trust that God's light can shine through the darkness. My prayer for each of us today is that we will not let the familiarity of this story lull us into inattention but rather that we let its familiar message become imprinted on our hearts. I pray that as individuals and as a church, we may come to trust that like Paul and Barnabas, we will not be derailed by failure or by falling, but learn to trust that God's spirit will lead us into faithfulness and joy beyond our imagining. After all, we know the formula and that's how the story always ends. May it be so for us. Amen.